0: Welcome to the Uncomfortable Truth Podcast, hosted by the rock star of consulting, Alan Weiss. Be prepared to have your beliefs challenged and your behaviors questioned. Welcome back to the Uncomfortable Truth. It's my great pleasure today to have Lou Heckler with me, who I've known since, I think, uh, just after the Spanish-American War. It's something like that. (laughs) (laughs) Lou is uh, instrumental in my becoming uh, and thriving as a professional speaker, and I owe a great deal to him, as he has been to many other people, for that matter. Uh, he's been doing this for more than forty years. Raised in Pittsburgh, educated in North Carolina, and he's been a Florida resident now since 1979. And he's still trying to get the early bird special straight. Uh, he spent nearly twenty years as an adjunct faculty member at the University of Michigan's Executive Education Center. He's received every top award in the country, in the universe, in the cosmos for speaking. I think these things they're shooting down somewhere over the Canadian border are actually more awards being sent from somewhere near Jupiter to be delivered (laughs) to Lou, but Biden is shooting them down. I'm sorry, Lou. He specializes in helping organizations challenge their people to achieve big results and always laces his presentations with great, great humor. He's a very funny guy. Lou, welcome.
1: Alan, thank you. And uh, yeah, I, I, I kind of thought that's probably what was happening with those balloons. I yes. guess we'll see if a, if a big truck pulls up out front.
0: What else could it be? <laughs> so, listen, you focus on this big innovative result that you talk about. And in an age of chat, GBT, and telehealth yeah. and smartphones, what does that really mean today? And you know, how do you look at that?
1: Yeah, it's, um, I don't think you can ever remove the human from the equation. And I mean, lots of things are trying, aren't they? <laughs> uh, uh, artificial intelligence and, and you know, it, it, sometimes I wonder whether intelligence is actually the actual word that should be in there. Uh, I, I do think, and maybe I'm an old timer. Well, I am an old timer. Maybe I'm an old time thinker, but I do think that the people that we work with, that we get a chance to work with, are hungry to be related to and challenged and, and rewarded. And involved, and I think uh, uh, I think most everybody that I talk to, and everybody that I see, gets pretty tired of everything being automatic. And you know, punch this button and dial here, and you try to call somebody for customer service, and you get this menu of push three, push two, push seven. Here's this. Here's that. Um, I just think one of the great challenges for us today is simply to relate to one another as human beings. Uh, it I, I, I recall a few years ago, one of my uh, nephews, who's an adult, uh, s- I said, well, you know, how are you doing? Are you able to make some new friends in your city? He said, oh, I've, I've got, uh, what did he say? I've got 347 friends. <laughs> I said, "Wow, well, that's an odd number. Well, how do you know that? Well, I mean, that's Facebook friends. Yeah. yeah. yeah and I said, no, no, like real friends. Oh, uh, not so many.
0: Yeah. Like speed dial friends. How many of you have?
1: Yes. Yeah. <laughs> and i i think um i think you can tell when you're in an organization when you're dealing with a business where the people have really been given the context of what they do and not just the content hmm? it's not it's not just running the package over the reader or handing them the form and saying thank you and have a good day uh, people who I, I think a lot of people lack that context. And therefore, this whole thing we hear today about quiet quitting, I kind of get it. You know, I was looking at a Gallup poll the other day that said last year, 2022, they estimated half the U.S. workforce will consist of what they called quiet quitters. In other words, people who haven't left the company, but they've essentially left the job.
0: You know, uh, this this focus on hybrid and people working at home and whether you get a 40-hour week out of them. I'm reminding clients you're not getting a forty hour week of people in the office. that That's a fantasy. Nobody yes. works forty hours a week. So get used to a positive twenty hours. You know, that's sufficient and and stop kidding yourself. i've always I've also thought that a company in quietly quitting should be um quietly firing. <laughs> quid pro quo here. yeah uh, so over over the four decades or whatever that you and I have both been speaking and coaching and so forth, I've noticed a change in my buyers and in my audiences. And I wonder if you have, and if so, what it is.
1: Well, you alluded to the fact that I use a lot of humor in my presentations, and that's getting tougher. Ah, why is that? As a, well, as a, first of all, a background. I grew up in western Pennsylvania, Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania. I went to a blue-collar high school. I was surrounded by a lot of first-generation Americans. I was surrounded by a lot of kids who were the first people in their family to speak English as their first language. And we had fun with that. We kidded each other about being German, about being Polish, about being uh, Italian, about being Russian, or whatever it might have been. We had fun with that. And we all laughed about it. We kidded each other about idiosyncrasies and, and, and just little bits of humor that go with coming from a, a multi-ethnic background. Well, of course, you can't do that at all anymore. No, And, and there's so much sensitivity about—somebody told me the other day, a speaker that I was coaching told me the other day, and he is married, and he was told when he's up on the platform, don't refer to your wife. You may say partner, because if you say wife, that excludes the people in the audience who are partners with somebody but haven't yet married or or are same-sex partners or whatever it may be. So th- there are all these sensitivities, and okay, I mean, I get it, I get it, all right, but it, it Provides a, a very hard platform for people like me who like to have fun. I don't poke fun, but I have fun when I'm up in front of the audience. I'm not making fun. I'm having fun. There's no place to make fun. That's mm-hmm. not right. And there's no place for the language that they can hear at a comedy club if they, if they choose to do that. But to find good humor in everyday things, as Jerry Seinfeld, of course, is one of the best at that, uh, it it's tougher, I think, today because because people—well, let me give you a quick example. I have a story that I love to tell about growing up and being taken to the circus. And it was, of course, Ringing Brothers and Barnum and Bailey Circus that came through Pittsburgh. And and all of the acts in those days, almost all of them were European families, weren't they? They, they came from all over Europe and, and joined the circus. I was always mesmerized by the acrobats because I'm not <laughs> an acrobat. I've never, you know, I have trouble turning a somersault. So I wanted to include a story about being more, uh, mesmerized by the acrobats. I couldn't remember who they were, but we had an Italian restaurant that was very popular in Pittsburgh when I was growing up called Tambolini's. So in my story, I referred to the group as the Tumbling Tambolini's. <laughs> And i got four evaluations out of a group saying i was being uh unkind and detrimental to italian americans
0: you know that doesn't surprise me uh was 25 years ago and my daughter was at syracuse university her sorority would throw something once a year called bop with your pop and the fathers would come up and dance with their daughters and an hour later the mothers were admitted you know we'd all drink that sorority women can really drink and uh, I probably offended several people. Just There then. you
1: go. You just offended 27 people, right? Yeah. <laughs> and,
0: um, and I remember on two occasions, two years running, I actually left a speech right after I was done. I said, I apologize. I can't stay around. I have to go to Syracuse, get up there and have uh, bop with your pop with my daughter. And the audience applauded. They said, God, that's wonderful, Alan. That's great. Well, a couple of years after that, they ended bop with your pop because you can't say pop. Not everyone has a pop. And on and on and on. So the world has changed. I want to pick up on something that you said, though, about sensitivity. And that. My experience is that, uh, you know, I enjoy humor a great deal. And I found, as you do, it's self-deprecating humor. You don't make fun of people, but That's you right. exploit your own foibles, right? But yes. I found that people who cannot laugh at themselves are almost always people with very low self-esteem. Yes. At high self-esteem, you can laugh at yourself. Is that, is that your experience as well?
1: Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. And, and the thing is, we're, we think of ourselves, I sometimes say to an audience, how many of you would consider yourself a rational person? Rational person, right? Okay. I said, and I, I say, and I'm, I'm up front with a suit and tie on. So I say, well, I think of myself as a rational person. For instance, today, I was going to come here and speak for you know a number of hours. So I tied a piece of cloth in a tight neck, tight knot around my, my neck. neck. <laughs> right. That's how rational I am. And I mean, so, if you. Can't just have some fun with what what it's like every day to be a human being. I feel sorry for
0: those people. Bob, uh, that, that is a great way to. I do feel sorry for them. So as a result of this, uh, have and sometimes we're the worst to comment on ourselves. But do you think you've changed your style? In other words, I have found that whether you're speaking or writing or in a meeting. In the first 90 seconds, people make a determination as to how much attention to pay. They yes. don't determine not to pay attention, but they determine whether they should pay rapt attention or maybe check their email, you know? Uh, yes. And so I've changed so that that first 90 seconds is, is you know, embracing. Uh, how do you feel about that? Have you, have you changed your style to any degree?
1: Uh, yes, I have. Uh, for the very reason that you're talking about. There is so much uh, attention-drawing competition for each of us who are up in front of a room, or even, for heaven's sake, even in a conversation in a around a table at a, a board meeting or anything, that you have to start off with something that is immediately compelling. And what I tell the people that I coach with their speeches, I like three things in an opening. I like something that, um, number one, naturally, gets the audience's attention. Number two, that reveals... Pretty strongly, what you're going to talk about, so that they can make that decision. Am I? Do I really want to listen? But the third thing, which a lot of people leave out, is something that would be intriguing about you. Because, and you, we hear Alan, and I know you've heard this too. When you go to a speaker's convention, it's not about you; it's about the audience. Well, that's baloney. Of course, it's a part about you, and people are looking up at you and going, "Isn't this unusual that this man or woman does this?" I wish I knew a little bit more about them and how they chose that. So one of my favorite opening sentences when I give a motivational speech is this one. I was named for my grandfather, and so was the street where I grew up. (laughs) And right away, I see heads coming like, what did he just say?
0: I remember one of your great lines. You said... um... When I was in grammar school, I failed comportment because I talked too much. <laughs> yes. And what do I do for a living now? I mean, that, <laughs> <Yes>, that's, <right. laughs> yes. that's just a great line.
1: Yes. I used I, to get punished for speaking. Now I get paid.
0: Yes. <laughs> well, both of us were fortunate to be uh, colleagues and contemporaries of the great Jeannie Robertson. Yes. And, and Jeannie taught me how to keep a story log. And when I first yes. sat, sat down to do it, I realized I had 126 stories. Who, who wow. knows? Right. Yeah. yeah, Some of them I told once a year, but some of them were my signature stories and so on. So I put little topic reminders on them and so on. Uh, But I find when I have a story that works, I always tell it with the same cadence. I always tell it the same way. I I don't try to vamp the story. I know it works. You tell great stories. Uh, Is that the same for you or do you have a different method?
1: No, that's pretty much it. I. um, I. I'm nosy. <laughs> I'll just say it out loud. I'm nosy. I like to ask people questions. I like to ask what I call the superlative questions: what's the funniest, what's yeah. the biggest, what's the most unusual. And so, if somebody shares that with me, uh, and I listen very carefully, but as soon as I leave that person's presence, I'm writing it down because I want to remember what their face looked like, what their gestures were, what their mood was, what their what their tone of voice, the cadences you talk about, because the. You know, the great stories and the great storytellers don't retell the story. They relive it. They they become the story all over again. Yeah. And I, And I think those records that I've kept over the years, and I do the same thing. I have told three or four major stories probably hundreds and hundreds of times. And you wouldn't hear much difference from number 102 and number 207. Because right. <laughs> because you learn after a while what works. But the one thing that I, I do notice, I was just thinking of this, believe it or not, this morning. I was listening, I was out briefly, and I was listening to uh, sports radio and a fellow named Dan Patrick, who's on uh, uh, network 9 to 12 or something like that. And he does a lot of his own commercials. And one of the things I noticed in his commercials that are different from most people, and it's what I notice in speakers that are different is, Speakers engage in a lot of onomatopoeia, mm-hmm. making words sound like the word they're describing. Bang, bang, mm-hmm. pop, burp, but also ran I will i I was shocked. I mean, you can make the word shocked in onomatopoeia. And he was doing that in his commercials instead of just reading, "Man, if you want a really good shave, get the shave club for men, you know, if you, but he's saying, if you want a really good shave you know it it's it's something about loving the language and realizing and Jeannie robertson you mentioned was a was an absolute queen of this making sure that people realize each word has enormous power
0: yeah yeah i i found it interesting thing you know it, it, i tell people as long as i'm learning and having a good time that's all that matters you know that right. that's keeps me going and I found, I was doing something for uh, the big uh, realtor, uh, century, was it Century 21, something like that? Yeah, uh-huh, yeah. And, and I did a keynote for their top residential salespeople. They loved to Come back to our commercial salespeople. And to my horror, I found, you know, 20% of them were the same people. They'd seen my stuff, so I told different stories. Third mm-hmm. one was for international something, and now 40% of the audience is the same. So by the fourth and final one, mm. uh, I'm running out of stuff. I'm running out of material. <laughs> and, yeah. But I'm I'm about uh, 40% through my speech, and a guy raises his hand, and he says, listen, Alan, when are you going to tell the immigration story? Uh-huh, I uh-huh. said to him, I know you. You've heard it twice. He said, yeah, but my friend hasn't, and I want to enjoy it with him. And that was a conceptual breakthrough, that right. people like to hear the same. Sometimes I say to the audience, what am I doing, requests here? But that's what they want. And, and there's a, a familiarity about stories that make people feel good. Don't you think?
1: Yes. Absolutely. And the analogy I use, and by the way, not equating myself with Billy Joel, (laughs) but if I go to a Billy Joel concert, what do I want to hear? Right? I want to hear Uptown Girl. I want to hear Piano Man. I want to hear all his big hits. I don't want him him to come out and say, hey, I know a lot of you have heard my hits over the years. I'm going to sing all new material tonight. So like you, when I had this sort of cathartic moment, I started asking meeting professionals, are there stories that I've told before? Because sometimes I've gone back five and six and seven times like you. Are there stories I've told? Oh, yes. Teaching your son to drive. Tell that story. Everybody wants that story. I said, well, you know, I've told it a couple of times. I know, But they say exactly what you said. I know, but we have new people coming in. And they have said to that person, wait till you hear his story about teaching his kid to drive.
0: You so, know, the late, uh, late Ricky Nelson had a song called Garden Party. And yeah, wrote, I remember that. Yeah, and he wrote it because he went to Madison Square Garden to sing all new material, and the crowd booed him. They wanted to hear his old stuff. So Hello, he used, Mary Lou. That's, that. That. that's right. That's right. right. Good, good for you. It was the Spanish-American War, wasn't it? <laughs>
1: <laughs> so yeah, I think we have to recognize what you said, and that is a well-told story. Think of this within your own family, right? From your grandpa, from your Uncle Joe, from your Aunt Minnie or whoever. You hear their stories over and over again, but if they're told well, you love to hear them over again.
0: Every Christmas, you know, if I'm allowed to say Christmas, I don't know. Every Christmas <laughs> people tell the same story, right? And yeah. and people rejoice and they revel in it, you know, because it's it's a it's a it's a family building experience. It
1: right? is. It's 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 a unifying experience. And yeah. that you know, the thing the thing about humor and anything that you do in front of an audience is if you if you divide rather than unify you're you're not going to have much of a career you have to work on unification because there's enough division among you know political aspirants and whoever else that our job i think should be to be out there trying to make people feel like we need to embrace one another
0: well you raised an issue i wanted to talk to you about and that is this i mean you and i and, and other people like us uh, deal with a huge diversity of organizations and people And and for that matter, globally, now that we do things remotely as well, why do you think we are so polarized today? And do you think uh, it can be it can be remediated in the short term?
1: I don't know, but my guess is this, that we have. The gap between the haves and the have nots has become great, greater and greater and greater. I think that's part of it. The. The prolific nature of angry language that we hear every day from politicians from the local level right up to the White House, I think tells says to people, oh, it's okay to talk like that. Okay, Mm. Where, you know, I think you and I were raised in an era where the boss, the mayor, the teacher, the president, whoever it is, you treat that person with respect. That's out the window. Just at the time this is being recorded. It's not long after President Biden's State of the Union message. And people in the Congress were yelling at him during yeah. the speech, yeah. unheard of a few years ago. Right. So I, I think people are. What's the old line from the movie? They're they're mad as hell and they're not going to take it anymore. Right. And so they just, yeah. <laughs> yeah, they just don't have a governor anymore. And the ubiquitousness and the anonymity of social media means you can say anything to anybody because you don't have to look him in the face
0: you know i think that's one of the key issues uh, let me remind you by the way that billy joel was not an acrobat either so you share good company there uh but it, in when the days you and i are talking about here uh you had to talk to somebody physically proximate to them but yes. now uh you can talk to them uh about things you would never say in person uh yes. you can block them you can do all kinds of crazy things and moreover it's it's become a, a normative pressure because everyone else is doing it. Yeah,
1: yeah, I think so. And if you're using an avatar as your name on social media, they don't even know who you are. Yeah, yeah. I I, I just um I I'm absolutely amazed at some of the things that I um. One of our colleagues, a fellow named Jarrett Bro, lives in New Orleans and speaks on. Uh, Publicity and getting good communication and so on. A couple of years ago, he put up a a notice on Facebook that said, Are you noticing, are any of you noticing that your comments from participants in your programs are getting harsher? I think he used the word snarkier. Snarkier. Yeah. And I think he got over a hundred people responded and gave these amazing examples of people where in the in the past I might have said, you know, I I really wish you had told a a few fewer stories and concentrated a little bit more on our industry or something like that. Now they say, you idiot, (laughs) you know, know, and go from there. It's, I I don't, somehow it's become okay. And I am old fashioned enough where to me, it's not okay.
0: Yeah, that's the normative uh, part of it. Uh, So to what extent are you active in, uh, on social media? Do you spend an hour a day or an hour a week or whatever?
1: I probably spend less than 20 minutes a day. Okay? I don't do Twitter. I, I do Facebook and I do uh, LinkedIn. I do a, a weekly blog every Monday on LinkedIn that has a nice following. Uh, that's really about it. You know, I, I just, um, if I want to talk to somebody, I like to pick up the phone. <laughs> and or do a, a Zoom meeting or something where I can actually see them. I don't um I don't like how self promoting most people are on social yeah. media, to tell you the truth. Self-care. And I have probably dozens, if not scores, of people that I consider friends who when I see their post, I just scroll right past it because I know it'll be chest beating or look at me or what I've accomplished. And I, you know, I sorry too old for that
0: do you uh do you do much of your work today remotely yes Uh, yes so i assume a much larger percentage than you did pre-pandemic remotely is that true oh
1: yes oh yes in fact most of it most of it is done that way almost all the coaching i do of other speakers i did have a a live real person coaching guest (laughs) this past weekend but um and and over the years, we've had probably 250 or 300 of them. But since the pandemic, all of that is being done, except for a few select people, it's being done remotely. It's not as good. It's not as, it, I don't think it has the same results, but for a variety of reasons, including the pandemic and some other health issues, we've just decided not to have as many guests in our home.
0: Now, your your speaking style, which is fabulous, is one where... You really engage the audience. I mean, I've seen you in person a number of times. And whether you're on a stage or you're down at the same level of the audience, you're looking people in the eye, you're moving around, you're telling these stories, you use a lot of gesturing and so forth. So yes. has, that, has that cramped your style any when you're doing things remotely and you're, you're basically sitting in one place? Or?
1: Well, um, a, a little bit. But uh, one of the things that was not in my introduction that you know, but wasn't in my introduction, I spent 15 years in in television, on the air. And so I became very accustomed to speaking to a camera as if it were a human being.
0: Tell people what you were doing on the air. What did you do?
1: Oh, I uh, I've spent eight years in television news in uh, Charlotte, North Carolina, Richmond, Virginia, and Indianapolis, Indiana. And then the rest of the time I was doing talk, a uh, morning talk show, a call-in talk show like a Larry King in the morning local talk show, producing documentaries and things like that. So I, I, I was one of those unusual birds, Alan, in, in that. Uh, At the University of North Carolina, I got involved with the public television system when I was a freshman. And by the time I finished my bachelor's degree, it's almost embarrassing to say it, I had already done over a thousand hours of live television. So I was very accustomed to being in a studio in front of a camera. And that, that hasn't changed that much in terms of... Uh, those abilities are still there. So remotely, I'm probably more comfortable than a lot of people are with a little camera that's up on top of my computer.
0: Now, I'm curious because you're addicted to using humor. When you delivered the, the news, did you interject humor in your news reports? <laughs> Not so much in the news reports.
1: What uh, happened on the Western
0: Front today? You know? yeah,
1: yeah, no, no, uh, it wasn't. Remember, this is the 60s and the 70s. They weren't the funniest times in America. Uh, Vietnam, yeah. Yeah, the Vietnam era. So, uh, but I certainly did with the talk show. It's it, you know if it's if it's in your DNA, which it is for me, then to use a double negative, I can't not be funny because number one, I see things and think they're funny, and number two, I have sort of an underlying philosophy every day, which is pretty simple: how can I make this fun? How can I make this fun? Give you an example. On the way uh, back from an appointment today, I stopped to get a couple of things at the grocery store, and the man in front of me had a cart that had, oh, I won't, I won't be exaggerating here, 12 bags of washed lettuce. He had um, uh, probably 40 pounds of meat. He had bread like crazy. He had all this stuff. And so I just tapped him on the shoulder, and I said, excuse me. Do you have 13 children or do you run a restaurant? <laughs> <laughs> he looked around and said, Yeah, I run a restaurant. Yeah, I'm what's it about. to you? <laughs> yeah, yeah. And of course, it, he to me, to him, that there was nothing funny about, but I just thought it was kind of funny. And why would you why would anybody see that and not make some comment on this remarkable amount of stuff that's just at a regular
0: grocery store? Whenever <laughs> I see somebody walking out of a buffet with a plate piled, you know, six inches high. I just say to them in passing, you know, you're allowed to go back.
1: <laughs> yes, I think, and I think sometimes it, people are taken aback, and I get that, you know. Yeah. yeah. But I can't stop. Yeah. I so I, if I if I'm walking through a grocery store and one of the clerks is down on his hands and knees adjusting something on a lower shelf, I'm very likely to go by and say, "Hey, when you're down there praying, could you put in a good word for me?" <laughs> You know, and they sometimes they go, yeah, I'll do that. I will. And sometimes they look at me like, "Are you from the moon?"
0: Well, never stop that. Do another forty years of that because it's it's great to hear you, and it's great to know you're a master at it. Uh, and my last question to you is this: How can people get in touch with you? Uh, how can they find out more about what you do and your resources?
1: Okay, thanks. My website is pretty simple. It's Heckler dot com. L o u h e c k l e r dot com. And you can reach me through that. There's a you know contact sheet or just Lou at Louheckler.com. dot com. And I'd be delighted to hear from your listeners. And thanks, Alan, for having me to do this. It's always a pleasure to see you.
0: Well, it's great to see you and hear you. And, uh, you know, many of your stories and comments are, are, are just come at the most appropriate times for me. So thanks for what you've done. And thanks for being with us today.
1: Thank you so much.
0: You've been listening to The Uncomfortable Truth with Alan Weiss. For free access to Alan's newsletters, audio and video resources, and for information about his global events and coaching communities, please visit alanweiss.com. Thanks for listening. Keep the faith.